Hi, Clayton. It's great to have you on, and thanks so much for doing this with us. Yeah, happy to be on, Sam. Uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Um, and just before we start uh, diving into the depths of DeFi, um, would you give our listeners a little taste of your background and journey through crypto? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I joined in 2017, basically based on FOMO, hearing prices in the news without really knowing what it all meant, and um, got quickly involved with basically token design. I was really attracted to the economics of the whole thing, right. the ability to think critically about some first principles with economics and motivation and, and distribution of assets and, and value. Um, and kind of over the next several years, I like got more involved with doing the economic side of things. Then I got involved with a startup that was um, pretty early in DeFi, arguably too early. Right. Um, and uh, then, uh, yes, I ran a group called DeFi Nation and um, that's kind of how I got into my current role as the community lead at UMA. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the journey. Sure. And when, when, you, when you say too early, um, what do you mean by that? Do you mean um, not enough interest or adoption? Um, yeah, I mean, we were working, the, the startup is called Masendo and right. it's, it's, a, it's sort of uh, just changed shape. It's, it's actually still kind of uh, chugging along in a certain way. It's just changed directions. But um, but yeah, the, the original iteration was meant to be a very user-friendly DAI wallet, sort of like Venmo or Revolut um, for crypto in a very straightforward sort of way. Um, and yeah, it was just too early because like it was before investors really came in and threw money at, at teams. Um, and so I was able to kind of build a lot of relationships that are that are that are like paying out today. Um, during that time. And I know that everyone on my team has as well. So I wouldn't say that anything went badly, like we all benefited, but the actual project, um, basically we weren't able to kind of get it off the ground in time. Um, and then like six months later when DeFi took off, we were getting messages from people asking if we were still building that because now they were interested in investing, you know. Was there a time or like a moment when you saw things really starting to take off in the industry? Yeah, I mean, honestly, when you ask that question, the very first thing that comes to mind is when the compound um, farming event sort of happened and people started um, uh, yield farming on compound. I mean, potentially that's a high point in retrospect because I recognize that now as the trigger that set things off. So I might be using a bit of hindsight bias to say that. Sure. Um, but definitely looking back, that that is what stands out. Otherwise, like obviously like the the heat of DeFi summer and all the crazy like returns that you could get farming sushi or farming YFI and all that stuff. It yeah. was just very clear that there was a certain uh, mania. Um, then, I don't know, kind of the other sort of catalyst again in retrospect was the huge crash of everything in, in March of 2019, I think, the kind of COVID crash. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, okay, that wasn't necessarily good for crypto at the time, like prices were, were super low. But at the same time, it kind of signaled to me, probably an increased willingness of people to adopt new systems. And we, we really saw like value flood into assets after that time. Um, so yeah, those, those moments stand out. Uh, it's kind of cool thinking through this. It's just been a really incredible time in history to be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And now um, I understand you studied economics and philosophy at university. Um, and given your focus on behavioral economics there, um, herd mentality is, is thrown around a lot in the context of crypto markets. Um, 
what in your opinion are the biggest behavioral biases that impact DeFi and even crypto as a whole? Yeah, awesome question. I I'm, appreciate you kind of uh, personalizing it so much. That's cool. Um, yeah, I, I guess what comes to mind first would be probably confirmation bias. I think that I think this is pretty normal, but it's just a behavioral thing where if you have money on the line, you're probably going to look for things that make you feel good about that fact and avoid things that that make you feel bad about that fact. And so I think we see that happening quite a lot when people, especially it, it kind of goes hand in hand with tribalism. Um, and I just think generally that leads to, to people not really recognizing where value is or continuing to go further down paths that maybe aren't yielding results. Um, and, you know, obviously it can impact people's portfolios negatively. Um, the other thing I would say is that like, so, so I got involved in 2017 just in time to buy into this story that ICOs were going to like tokenize everything and like music was going to be on chain and yeah. events were going to be on chain and your rental history is going to be on all this stuff, right? And like, I actually kind of let myself buy into all those narratives. And I realize now the reason is because, well, the price is going up. The market is validating this thesis, right? Sure. And I think we see that happen today too. People basically use price going up as an indication that the value and that the like adoption narrative is legitimate. And um, I think that that's kind of a mistake. Um, you know, like we're all sort of like looking around at the other people who are behaving the same way as we are in public and taking cues from them about what's truth and what what's accurate. Um, but if you've been around for the crash of a market, you realize how quickly that all crumbles. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's, yeah, that's another one. Using price as a confirmation for, for a narrative. How would you advise people to um, try and stay away from these biases and act as, as rationally as possible? Is, is there a way to um, cut through the noise in your own head and sort of the mania around the markets? Sure. You know, plenty of people know how to make money on the markets. Like I, I would, I, I've actually learned quite early not to advise people not to buy things because then the price goes up and then they resent you for, for, for following your advice. Right. Um, <laughs> but all I've, I guess the advice I would give then would be a little more generalized, which is to like kind of learn the kind of person that you are. So I've just recognized that emotionally, I can't put too much money on the line on something that I'm not, don't have some long-term faith in. And so my advice is pretty kind of, uh, you know, fiscally conservative, which is to say like, have a belief in a couple things, just huddle, right? And then put in some time, honestly. Like, I, I think the biggest payouts I've personally had have just been by getting involved and like, whether that's, because now I'm getting airdrops because I happen to use a certain protocol or, um, or just, you know, because I've joined a team. Um, but there's plenty of ways to earn in DAOs. So I, I guess my general advice is um, not to just price chase, but to try to get involved. And then of course, you're going to have better position and better information um, if you want to make, if you want to take position in certain products. And you refer to it there as tribalism. Um, can this be dangerous in some instances, or do you think it could be an advantage? Gosh, that's a big question, right? Um, I mean, I Sorry. think it's certainly, yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly think it can be dangerous, right? Like, I, I think the connotations of the term herd mentality uh, pretty much imply that danger is there. Um, and I don't know, Sam, it's it's really, markets are just fascinating to me, um, mm. this, this whole phenomenon. So, like, 
yeah, it's dangerous on an individual basis because psychologically it can mess you up a lot. I think if you're, um, you know, if you're suffering from FOMO or you put too much money on the line, things like that. Um, I guess if I were to, to think of my own personal journey with it, it was like to just take it somewhat slowly and see it as a learning exercise. Um, the benefits of it though, like, I think it's helping propel crypto ahead, right? You know, we need these times. We need all this interest. The fact yeah. that you and I are recording a, a clip here and people want to listen to it, that's like kind of born out of the fact that we have this, this mania going on and, um, you know, the industry needs it to move forward. So um, I absolutely think it's like a good thing in the long run in that regard. It just has, you know, it's like, I, I think of it as breathing in and breathing out, right? Like the market goes up and goes back down and um, some of the, some of the things will disappear when it goes back down and then the, the persistent things will, will, will hang on. Sure. Um, and you, you've touched there on your passion uh, about financial markets. And obviously, um, Uma has the core belief that financial markets should be free, open, fair. Um, and at this stage, to convert an idea into something tangible and useful, um, one needs to be fairly technologically competent um, to put different blocks and modules together. Um, do you see any other barriers to entry? And how do you think these can be overcome? Sure. No, that's a good question. Um, and yeah, I think that there are plenty of, of barriers to entry. So, so with UMA, like, you know, our, our, um, our whole purpose is universal market access and it's, it's hinged on the fact that Ethereum is permissionless. So anyone could pick up a smartphone, download MetaMask and be, be connected in minutes. And so that is like permissionless but it requires a certain amount of cultural and intellectual capital that I don't think is out there yet, including just the knowledge of the availability of those, of those products and options and things like that. Um, and then of course, there's like just financial knowledge. Um, so yeah, I think that that's just a barrier to crypto in general. Um, it's kind of cool. So I'm, I live in um, Southeast Asia for most of the year um, for right. the last like eight years. And so I've seen cool ways that people have gotten involved in crypto. So like the Axie game, for example, um, in the Philippines has gotten super popular. There's like over a million players there. And so you've got people who pick up this game that is, you know, just like an app game on your phone, yeah. but you start to earn money that you can cash out. And it's a non-trivial amount of money for these people relative to the local salaries. Sure. And um, so that's where we see people starting to, to kind of overcome that, that obstacle because all of a sudden you've got people converting to Ethereum. And and then like using a gateway and then helping to build up customers for those gate those gateways and forcing the regulators to to take a position and regulate this stuff and um so that's that's going to serve i think the entire industry do you think this younger generation coming through um are going to be more uh, blockchain literate if you will yeah i think i think that's probably a pretty reasonable assumption um i mean i'm kind of like just guessing, but yeah, that would, that would make sense to me, right? They're going to be more smartphone savvy and um, just generally the demographics in crypto um, lean in that direction. It is going to be pretty interesting when people who like were born into to, born watching smartphones as their babysitters, right? Um, yeah. Are, are like accustomed to, to using crypto one day. Um, but yeah, there's still lots of, I mean, most people I encounter, anywhere in the world that I am don't know about it. So, I mean, we're still a ways from that, that day, but um, I definitely imagine it would be the younger people.
Sure. And is there something as a community we can do to open up access and lower the barriers to entry? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, there's things that we as individuals can do. Um, and, you know, whether that's, you know, I've, I've been in occasions where I've like tipped people in crypto and that's the first crypto they've ever touched or just helping to, to onboard people to, to products that I think would suit them well that are also safe. So if that's like probably something like really stable returns on something. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I would say products like I mentioned, like Axie or something that that just kind of like both has a time and a place like it has a draw. There was a there's an income opportunity there. Um, then, you know, I would hope that the other use case that we're going to see more and more of is going to be in occasions where people basically don't have access to financial tools that they need. So for instance, 14% of the world doesn't have a government ID, so they can't actually like prove their identity to an institution like a bank. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, there, there's, there's crypto projects that, that have worked more like NGOs and have kind of tried to, to do crisis relief, for example. And um, so hopefully there's going to be times where crypto can get easier and easier to use on ramps and off ramps get more accessible. And we can start to see it go into places where uh, crypto uh, can, can, fill, can fill this role or fill this access issue. Um, and now I want to touch on your perspective um, of the power of community in driving both individual protocols, um, but also DeFi as a space. Um, obviously, without community, there'd be very little progress. So in your experience, how important is it to build a community around an idea or project? It's proven itself to be essential. Um, if you asked me if this was going to be like the way things worked, like back in 2017, I'm not sure I would have said yes, or I, I certainly wouldn't have. Um, uh, I certainly wouldn't have predicted it. The, I mean, this whole idea of giving tokens out to people and then they have like a vested interest in the success of the protocol is really foundational to crypto. And um, it's actually so foundational that you can have a token that's held by people and that unites them, but it's not really clear yet what the product is that they're building. And I think that, uh, and then the, the kind of the other supporting evidence to that is you look at projects like Yam or Pickle or Popsicle, and it's funny to say all those in one sentence. <laughs> yeah. um, they had, each of them had some, some somewhat catastrophic events um, with regard to hacks or exploits. And um, they've all like, they're all still around and that's on the basis of the community. You know, it's like um, people stick around, they still hold some of this token, maybe they take a hit, but they, they even feel inspired by being the underdog or helping to rebuild it. Um, it's absolutely critical. And um, just speaking from Uma's perspective, we are building out the community basically with this idea that, you know, I mentioned earlier in the call that one of the obstacles we're having is that we, we're lacking the intellectual and cultural capital and and we're building up our community and rewarding them with, with ownership in the UMA protocol for helping to teach other people the language of UMA, to help carry this message out there, show people how to use it, help developers build these products, help conceptualize different ways to build these products, et cetera. That's the role the community fills in UMA and it is absolutely essential. And I think like just from the token ecosystem perspective, it's essential. And from the adoption perspective, you know, these, this really is 
quite a novel and powerful technology, but it's not something that just becomes usable in day one, just because, just because it's there and the tools are available doesn't mean people know how to use them and markets need time to mature. That's the other thing I've learned by practice is um, profit opportunities and even the crypto economic incentive glue that holds all this stuff together. It takes a while to train the world on how to address those things. And so there's huge opportunity for people who show up early and take advantage of, of that stuff. Um, and, and so that part's cool, but from our perspective, it just takes some time and effort. And that's where the community comes in. They really, they really pull a lot of weight there and help, help uh, introduce the whole thing to the world. Sure. Have you, have you ever had a community member make a suggestion or um, put something out there that has sort of completely altered the way you think about something or has, you know, you, you've, you've, you've had to onboard them because of that comment. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's every day, to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, and I'm not even being facetious, like um, the community is running a big part of what we're up to with regard to how we communicate uh, our projects to the world, et cetera. And like to give like one small concrete example, I had somebody who was in traditional finance um, uh, get excited about something we were doing and offer some insights on how we can run our KPI options campaign, which is kind of the payment mechanism that, that underlies the community. And so like, yeah, I mean, he's got this marketing background and he's making suggestions and like right away, I was like, okay, let's hop on a call. So we had a call and he's like being a consultant for how we're going to run this program. And that's, what's incredible about it is wow. people can show up, demonstrate value. And, and you just, it's like, you don't really even need to vet them. You're not giving them like a ton of control in such a way that they could do any harm. They can really only bring value. Um, and it's, it's really cool. It's a really cool way to work. Um, you don't have all these cultural hoops to jump through. Um, yeah. doesn't matter what clothes you're wearing, any of that stuff. You've tweeted, quote unquote, uh, quit your job, full-time your DAO. Um, do you think from a global perspective, people are becoming more empowered to follow their ideas? And if anyone is listening and sitting on the fence, and questioning whether they should push forward with an idea they have. Um, what advice would you give them? Sure. So, um, yeah, I did say that, didn't I? That's a cheeky thing that you say on Twitter, but uh, I don't <laughs> know if you'd like to say that to your nephew or not. Um, <laughs> no, no, genuinely though, like what's, what's cool about showing up and helping a DAO, like in, in Uma's case, there's real earning opportunities. And um, it's cool because you can moonlight or most jobs have, um, like, I, I don't know, most jobs I've worked, maybe you have half a day in the office where you're not actually doing your real job. Um, at least I've been in occasions <laughs> like that. And yeah. you, can, you can moonlight at a DAO, you know what I mean? And so you don't need to start. You don't need to like quit on day one, start doing the DAO thing on day two. Like you should definitely co-mingle for a while. Um, and, but yeah, so I would absolutely suggest people jump in. Basically, here's the thing in, in right now, the way that I perceive it, there's kind of a, a, a um, lack of delegatory bandwidth, meaning that like, I know I need more help, but I don't even have the time to like explain projects to people and, and ask them to do certain things. I actually need people who want to show up, start creating value without asking my permission or guidance and become indispensable. 
And then all of a sudden, like I, they're indispensable and, I need, and we need them around. The community recognizes that and we respond to it and support them. Um, that's the way to get involved. It's, it's, it's like there's so much going on. You can't actually even wait for someone to give you instructions. Um, yeah. Lean in, have confidence that, you know, if you're, let's say you're just aware of, of the messaging of a protocol and you notice that something hasn't been explained well and you think you can explain it better like write a tweet thread or go into discord and start a conversation about it. Um, like that, the thing that you recognize that that might be valuable to bring, that's actually a unique perspective that like I don't have. And by sharing that you're providing not only the value of the content, but also the perspective. And so like, I absolutely encourage people to be like, to kind of fake it, to be more confident than they even really are and to show up and to start doing cool stuff. And um, those are just those are just the people that really that really uh, move the needle in, in Uma's community, at least. Sure. And you don't need that. There's not any barriers to entry there. I mean, it's anyone can turn up and comment on the way something's done. Um, you, you don't necessarily even need a professional background. You can just you know offer up your views and opinions on something and then, you know, see if that's picked up by the community. Absolutely. No, that's exactly the way to do it. Totally. Um, you can be completely anonymous you know you just show up consistently people start to recognize your name um and if you're doing it in the right places um you know you're, you're gonna start to earn for it too because the way i think of it by the way is like i'm not paying people anything to me they are creating the protocol like when they go out there and communicate something or create content or help a developer onboard they're not just like doing a service for which they're owed money they just like did land reclam reclamation for the protocol. They just made it bigger. Yeah. And all my job is to do is to like give them the title for that land that they just built, um, which is some of the tokens. You know what I mean? That's how I experience it. Um, just helping to build this thing together. Yeah, it's a great way of looking at it. Um, I guess everyone wins there. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and now a slightly more trivial ending. Uh, we're going to do some quick fire favorites. So are you ready? Yep. Perfect. Right. America or Asia? Asia. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Uh, Musk. Morning, afternoon or night? Morning. Cars or motorbikes? Motorbikes. Proof of work or proof of stake? Oh, ah, a proof of work. Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi? Ooh, uh, <laughs> this one's harder than the Bezos Musk one. Um, <clears throat> oh, okay. <laughs> I'll accept that. Um, fast or slow? Slow. Quality or quantity? Quality. Summer or winter? Summer. iPhone or Samsung? Um, iPhone. California or New York? California. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Leader or follower? Leader. Ethereum or Bitcoin? Ethereum. Dark or light? Interesting. Um, light. If you had to pick one of your heroes, um, it can be a celebrity or someone closer to you, um, who would it be and why? Hmm. You actually gave me a heads up on this question. And I haven't arrived at, I did. at a perfect answer. Um, that honestly, the two people that come to mind straight away, like 
uh, I mentioned starting in 2017, Chris Berniski in the space um, really published a lot of things that motivated me a lot and really helped me understand the economics, the token economics. He stands out. And then to be sort of sappy, like my father really, like he kind of enabled me to have this lifestyle that by, by teaching me his uh, jewelry and antique business before I got into crypto. And um, yeah, I would say that he's a personal hero of mine in, in part just recognizing the value he brought to my life and adventurous spirit and my, um, yeah, he really gave me the platform that I could sort of quote unquote quit my job and full-time my DAO um, <laughs> because I had to do that sure no that's um that's awesome that's really cool um well i haven't got any more questions for you and thank you so much for your time um it's really appreciated um and i hope you had a bit of fun too i did that was really great sam thank you so much for the great questions cheers thanks very much